Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for today, for new life, for hope, for promise, uh, for the assurances that you give us in Jesus Christ. For without him, we are without hope. But with him, we have all hope, we have all expectation and encouragement. Bless us today as we consider your word, how we might live together in a manner that uh, is glorifying to your name and good for your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is our ninth lesson on life and our communion. Uh, Lord willing, we'll have one more uh, next week. And this, this one I want to mention, though, is drawn almost entirely from Jerry Bridges' book uh, titled True Community. Uh, the Biblical Practice of Koinea, and we're going to be talking about sharing and serving as part of the life of our communion. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. At the time of our baptism, God incorporates us, puts us into the body of Christ. And this is more than just a literary metaphor. Uh, This is the truth. We are engrafted into Christ. We become part of Him, part of His body. That's what saves us, our connection to Him. So what happens to Him happens to us. We are united to Jesus Christ. And so he, in, in doing that, he places us, uh, each one in his body, but that also means that we are in a community relationship with all the other believers uh, in which we together share this common life in Jesus Christ. This is an objective fact that we are in fellowship with the other, all the other believers, uh, and this objective aspect of fellowship, however, is intended to provoke a basis for experiential fellowship. It's not just a theory. It's not just something that we can put on a chart. It's not just our name on a list somewhere. But rather, we are, are now put into this living, organic relationship with one another. And so we're not meant to be passive participants. We're not just put on the roll. Uh, to use a business metaphor, uh, we are we are not silent partners in the partnership of the gospel. Rather, God intends for all Christians to be active participants in the body, working partners in the mission of or the enterprise of the gospel. And to this end, God has assigned each Christian, every single Christian, a function in the body of Christ. And so I'll begin with a rhetorical question for you. Do you know what your function is, what your function is in the body of Christ? That's a question you want to keep before you, because there are no exceptions to this. Every member has a function within the body that God has assigned uh, him to fulfill. And just as God assigns to each of us a function in the body of Christ, that means he also equips us to fulfill that function. In the New Testament, this equipping is called a gift, something that he gives to us. A spiritual gift is an ability given by God and empowered 
by the Holy Spirit to perform the specific function or functions within the body that God has assigned to each of us. And so in his discourse on spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, Paul, using the analogy of the physical body, says this, verses 4 and 6, For we have, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace of that is given to us. There's a number of things here. Uh, he talks about we are many, and that's actually talking about us as individuals. There are many individuals, but these many individuals placed into the body of Christ are one. We're connected. We're unified. And then when he says that each of us has uh, differing gifts according to the grace given to us, uh, that there, there's a distinction. There's a division of labor, if you will. We don't all do the same thing. And so Paul spoke similarly of the communal significance of a gift when he said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Now, it's interesting. The manifestation means the revealing. How do we see the Spirit at work? We see it in each other. We see it in those daily interactions we see it in the things that Christians do toward one another, in serving one another, and in being served. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's taken this disparate, lost group of individuals, and by His grace has brought them together and unified them in Christ, given them gifts, and called them now to live in a community and to serve and love one another. And so gifts are to be used... Again, to serve others, they're given for the common good of the whole body, and so their purpose is to enable us to fulfill the function that God has called us to. (coughs) Many people these days are wondering what their gift is, uh, but they're asking the wrong question, I think. We should be seeking primarily to find what our function is in the body. What can we do? What needs to be done? How can I help? Those are kind of common ways we might ask that question. And so there are particular tasks assigned by God. But the important important fact to note is that we've usually been performing these functions probably long before we even recognized that these are gifts that God has given. Uh, He has equipped us uh, through spiritual gifts to do them. And he has providentially arranged the circumstances of our lives so that we actually perform those functions. Now, let me just say quickly, one of the problems that we have is it's entirely possible that all this is true, but we we sit passively and don't do our jobs. We think it's somebody else's job, or somehow it will just get done. Think about in a family uh, with children and, and a household full of people, a lot of jobs go undone. There are plenty of things to do, but it's easy for someone to assume someone else is going to do them. And it's easy for the same thing to happen in the church, to think, well, my job is to show up on Sunday and listen to the lesson and uh, then listen to the sermon, maybe sing a song or two, uh, write a check, eat some lunch, and go home. Um, it's way more than that. 
And so, and we're going to, again, expand this a bit and think about it a little more deeply. And so, I will say that our gifts are always consistent with our function. We usually don't think of fellowship uh, in terms of fulfilling responsibility, but that is because we've lost sight of the biblical meaning of fellowship. Fellowship is not just social privilege, uh, social privilege to enjoy. It is more a responsibility to be assumed. It is not just a privilege, not just something we get to go do because we enjoy it. It is a responsibility we have to one another. The fellowship of our spiritual gifts is the using of our gifts for the benefit of the rest of the body and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. The world's going to know that we're his disciples because they see what we're doing. They see that we love each other in good times and bad times. And so having seen that biblical fellowship involves the use of our spiritual gifts to fulfill our function in the body, we need to consider uh, certain basic truths or principles regarding those spiritual gifts. 1 Peter uh, 4, uh, 10-11, the purpose of all spiritual gifts, as we read, was to serve others and glorify God. Again, I'll read that. As each one has received a gift, that would be you, you're included in that each one, minister it to one another or serve one another, that in all things God may be glorified. What is glorification? You remember that? We talked about that before. I gave you the illustration of the bride coming in the back of the church. Everybody turns to see this glorified woman. Glory is a magnification. We are to take the, the truth about God himself, because we're his image bearers, and we are to shine a light on him by the way we live. We're to show what difference he makes. And we're going to glorify him. We're going to point all eyes to him. And so, uh, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is the focus of what we're doing. We serve one another because it glorifies him when we do. According to Peter, there are two objectives in the use of our gifts, serving uh, serving others and glorifying or praising God. He also referred to us as stewards uh, in the use of our gifts, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Good stewards of God's grace. God's been gracious to us. He's shown us favor. That means we show each other favor. God's given us grace, then we give grace. We're stewards. We've been given this, and now we're to manage it. We're to make use of it. When used in this sense, steward refers to a person who manages someone else's property or finances, or affairs. And so this is an important point. Our gifts are not our property to use as we please. They're a trust committed to us by God to use for others for his glory as he directs. So every Christian has a gift, and every gift is important. Every gift is important. Uh, Paul expressly says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit or the benefit of all. 
And so the apostle uh, uh, Paul anticipated this tendency when he envisioned the foot saying in 1 Corinthians 12, 15 through 16, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I am not of the body, uh, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? So here Paul has in mind the person with less noticeable gift, gifts comparing himself with a person with more noticeable gifts and then feeling that he has no gift at all. All gifts are important. We already learned this. Everyone has a gift. Every one of you has a gift. And all of the gifts are important. They're all to be employed. Some are more important than others, uh, perhaps, but none, none is unimportant. So if we, if it goes undone, then it affects the body in a negative way, just like at your house when somebody doesn't do their part, it affects the whole family. Now, we want to also recognize that the, whatever gifts we have, our gifts, they're sovereignly bestowed to us by God. First Corinthians 12:11, Paul said, "But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills." Again, using the physical body as an analogy, Paul stated in verse 18, "But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as He pleased." Every gift is given by God's grace. And again, in Romans 12, 6, Paul said, having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given to us. Peter said, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards, as we've already said. So here are these gifts God's given, and he decided which gifts to give. And so when we resist that, we say, well, I I wanted that other gift. I I wanted that other thing. We're basically complaining against God. God, you didn't give me what you gave somebody else. Um, And so we need to learn from the very beginning that part of our following Christ, part of our submitting to him, is a recognition that he gets to decide how he wants to put us to work in his body. In Ephesians 3, 7-8, Paul testified freely that he did not deserve to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He said, I, am, I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power to me who am less than the least of all the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now that is an amazing attitude. Paul recognizes he has this gift, but that he didn't deserve it. It's a gift. That's that's why it's called grace. So another important point here, whatever gifts you have have to be developed and exercised. Paul exhorted Timothy, for example, 2 Timothy 1.6, he said uh, to rekindle or to stir up the gift of God. Perhaps this morning this lesson will do that for you. Make you think about it. Say, okay, I I need to be more active. I need to be more engaged. Elsewhere, Paul told Timothy, do not neglect 
your gift. And then in 1 Timothy, after exhorting Timothy not to neglect his gift, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.15, meditate on these things, think about these things, and give yourself entirely to them so that your progress may be evident to all. So that everybody, when they look at you, say, boy, they have really grown. They have really become more engaged. It's obvious. It's clear. Timothy's use of his gift was not a matter of indifference. He was accountable to, the sovereign, to a sovereign God for his development and use of the gifts that God gave him. The effective use of every gift, of course, depends on faith in Christ. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Speaking of his own diligent efforts, Paul wrote to the believers at Colossae in Colossians 1.29, To this end, or this goal, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So we have God at work in me, and we have me striving. Those coming together. I can't do it by myself. I can do it, but I can do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Peter expressly said, 1 Peter 4.11, If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. So there is a total reliance upon him. You say, I don't know if I can do that. I'm not so sure. I'm not, I've never done this before. Step out. Get outside your comfort zone. Do some things. So only, uh, we need to keep this in mind, we talked about this in a sermon a couple of weeks ago from 1 Corinthians 13, only love will give true value to our gifts. In any discussion of spiritual gifts, we should give careful attention to the fact that the classic, classic scripture passage on Christian love, again 1 Corinthians 13, is set right in the middle of the Bible's most extensive treatment on spiritual gifts. The first part of the passage, Paul told us that even if we possess the greatest of gifts, if we have the most extraordinary faith and display an amazing amount of zeal and courage and yet have not love, then we are, we accomplish, then we are nothing and we accomplish nothing. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul urged us to use our gifts in Romans 12, 3, when he said, For I say, Through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each, each each one, a measure of faith. So perhaps the most uh, critical uh, or crucial and telling criterion for assessing your gift is confirmation from other Christians. So we could, perhaps you could just start, if you're not sure, and ask somebody in your family. Ask friends. Ask somebody here at church. What do you think I'm good at? What do you think I might, how, what do you think needs to be done? How could I be of service? There's all kinds of ways that you could go about asking these questions. Maybe you see somebody else who's doing something and you're interested in that, but you're not quite sure how to do it. 
And you go ask them, would you teach me how to do that? Could I help you do that? Could I come alongside you? Could I kind of be your apprentice in this? And so it's impossible to be in a family, a small family or this larger family, and not find things to do that are productive and helpful and acts of service. You've got words. You can use those. You can pray. You can pick up trash. You can help set up chairs and tables. You can cook meals. You can uh, encourage one another. You can, I mean, we could go down a long list. Those don't seem very spiritual, but they actually are. These are the very kinds of things we're talking about, uh, the scriptures are talking about, of how we serve the body. We help one another. We, we're, we're marching to Zion together, and we, we come alongside someone who's dragging, who's discouraged, and we help them, we lift them up. We rejoice with one another. We weep with one another. We, uh, we confront one another. We, uh, we give words of encouragement. And there's lots of ways to do that. We've, we've talked about hospitality. We've talked about um, uh, the ability to, to share in labor with one another. There's a whole host of ways to do this. Um, and so exercising our spiritual gifts should result in ministry or service and blessing to others. They can tell if you've ministered to them. And if you have, they will probably let you know, either by words of appreciation and encouragement or by request for you to minister to them again. Finally, you might seek confirmation of what you believe your gifts are to be from, again, Christians that you respect, people who know you well enough to help you in your evaluation. Maybe you need to try some things. Maybe you'll find out, nope, I wasn't very gifted at that. Um, but you tried. Okay, we can check that maybe off your list. Um, So we're talking about life in our communion or life in our community. Uh, Galatians 5.13 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we keep seeing this idea of service. Service is, an, and that word is often just translated ministry. So someone says, I have a ministry. Well, what you mean is I have a service. I have a way of serving other people, of taking what I have, myself, my time, my energy, my gifts, and giving them and, and performing them in a way that it blesses other people. Fellowship involves sharing what we ha- have with others. <clears throat> One of the most valuable things that we have that we can share uh, is ourselves. Our time, our talents, our energies in serving one another in the body of Christ. And again, it's, it's uh, in little things. And remember, here, here's an important thing to remember. It's, we're not doing this to be seen by men in that sense. Jesus says people will see you and they'll glorify you. And in fact, he says, let your light... So shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But he doesn't want us to be Pharisees. We're not doing it so we get a pat on the back, uh, get a gold medallion. Uh, God sees and God blesses. 
And so one of the, uh, the greatest model and teacher of servanthood, of course, was the Lord Jesus himself. Um, the greatest model. Uh, Paul said that uh, of himself uh, that he took, uh, excuse me, Paul said of Jesus that he took the form of a bondservant, a slave. And Jesus said of himself in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our model. And although Jesus' entire life was one of service, the most notable example of his servanthood was that of washing his disciples' feet on the evening of his betrayal, and that's recorded for us, of course, in John 13. 1 through 17. In this instance, this instance was notable because of both the setting as well as the mundane nature of his service. Jesus knew that it was the night of his betrayal and that the very next morning he would suffer on a cross for the sins of the world. He would, from our viewpoint, have had every reason to be preoccupied with his imminent sufferings. Think about that. Yet Jesus took the time to tend to a duty, washing the feet of guests that was usually left to the lowliest household servant. He did this with full awareness of his own divine dignity. John says of him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God. Interesting prequel to what comes next. Rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. It was not in spite of his greatness, but because of his greatness that Jesus served his disciples on that evening. And through his own attitude toward servanthood, He taught us that true greatness in the kingdom of God consists not in position or authority, but rather in serving one another. And so if we're to master the scriptural principle of true biblical community, then we're going to need to master this one. True greatness in the kingdom of heaven involves serving one another. Jesus said, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Even the disciples vied among themselves for rank and position rather than for the privilege of serving one another. The mother of James and John, you remember, asked uh, Jesus if her two sons might sit at his right hand and his left hand in his kingdom. And on that memorable evening of the Last Supper, the disciples were still disputing among themselves who was the greatest. 
So serving one another within the body is very practical and a concrete way of us loving one another. By serving, I simply mean doing helpful deeds for one another. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. But it requires no spiritual gift or talent to wash feet. Clean shoes, gather firewood, all that's required is a servant's attitude. No one ever gets to a place within society as a whole or within the body of Christ in particular where, where they are too important to serve others in the ordinary task of life. I uh, had a boss once, uh, I think I was about 20 years old in the retail business, and we were having a staff meeting, and I, in my great wisdom at age 20, I uh, gave the cliche, never ask anyone to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. And he said, no, never ask anyone to do something they haven't seen you do. In fact, one of the um, chief characteristics of a servant is that he serves downward. That is, to those who by the world's standards are beneath him in position or station. It's relatively easy to serve those who are above us. Even the world expects this. But Jesus served downward. At one time, Jesus said, Who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. But although it may be true in the world that the lesser serves the greater, in the body of Christ it is to be different. Again, Jesus said, For I have given you an example in serving that you should do as I have done. Solomon's son, King Rehoboam, did not learn that lesson of serving down. Shortly after ascending to the throne of Israel, he was approached by some of the people who had asked him him that the heavy yoke of taxation and forced uh, labor be lightened, that he would lighten their burden. And upon consulting the elders who had advised his father, Rehoboam was told... And they spoke, saying to him, If you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will, then they will be your servants forever. However, Rehoboam did not listen, and he, didn't, he did not choose to serve downward. He did the opposite, and as a result, he lost ten of the twelve tribes from his kingdom and created an irreparable separation within the nation of God's people. There's an amazing number of instances uh, where the servant was in a position, from the world's point of view, uh, uh, above those he served. Paul, for example, said, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. That's the Apostle Paul. Serving others usually required no special talent or ability, but it does take a servant attitude to want to serve others as well as an observant eye and mind to see 
the needs of others, which, by the way, that gets back to a lot of other things we've talked about. That's why you have to spend time with people. You're not going to see needs just walking past somebody on Sunday morning and say, saying, how you doing? You're going to have to actually sit down with somebody and have a conversation and get to know people and find out what their needs are. And so if we have a servant attitude, we can develop an, observ- an observant eye. We'll recognize something's wrong. We'll, we'll notice somebody's struggling. We'll recognize across the room somebody's over there doing something and I'm not helping. The reason most of us don't see opportunities to serve is that we're continually thinking about ourselves instead of others. We haven't learned that we are to look not only to our own interests, but to the interest of others. And so as we serve those who God has placed over us in the body of Christ, the most important character trait is that of faithfulness and trustworthiness. Uh, can, can the person over us count on us to do the job that we've been given to do? Or will we, because of a lack of commitment to the task, fail to fulfill the responsibilities? So the lack of a serious commitment to faithfulness uh, in assigned or agreed-on task is a major problem among Christians. We somehow feel that since we're serving in a voluntary capacity Uh, Commitment to faithfulness is unimportant. But God's the one who requires faithfulness. We work for Him. And someone once observed the true test of whether we are a servant is that we don't mind being treated like one. In Luke 17, 7-10, Jesus describes the challenge of facing those who have put themselves in the position to be servants. He said, And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself, and serve me till I've eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So notice something in this, a couple of things. Observe the inconsiderateness of the master in this story. The servant has worked all day, he's obviously tired, he's obviously hungry, and yet before he can rest and eat, he's got to go prepare a meal for his master. A lack of consideration toward those serving is too often evident within the body. Many Christians, again, are self-centered. That's really our fundamental problem. We're thoughtless, impatient, make demands, we create work for other people. We don't clean up after ourselves. Um, and uh, we fail to plan ahead, and then we need something done right now. Mothers, even in Christian homes, are typical victims of inconsiderateness, the inconsiderateness of others. The athletic uniform dropped on the bedroom three day, floor three days ago suddenly needs to be washed immediately. Dad is late for dinner and doesn't call 
toys, games, various articles of clothing are scattered around the house for mom to pick up. Never mind how it should be. This is too often the way it is. Mom is a servant, and the rest of the family members are often inconsiderate. Then also observe in this story the ingratitude of the master whom Jesus described. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Suppose that athletic uniform was washed on time and the dinner is kept hot while waiting for dad's late arrival and all the miscellaneous items that were dropped around the house are picked up and put in their proper place. Did anybody thank mom? Too often, she does not get thanked. And after all, that's what moms are supposed to do, right? But Jesus doesn't stop with our acceptance of inconsiderateness and ingratitude. He presses home the role of the servant even more. Because that's life. We're gonna, when we serve, we're not going to always get thanked. No, you're not going to always be appreciated. Except by God. He's always watching. He always knows. And so he presses home again the role of the servant. When we have done our job as a servant and we have borne up under inconsiderateness and ingratitude, we are not to congratulate ourselves for our heroic role. Rather, we are to humbly say, Jesus said, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. If we aspire to be servants, we must accept the role of a servant. This is the toughest of all the demands of servanthood. We must accept the fact that God is calling us to be servants, wants us to accept inconsiderateness and ingratitude as part of our lives. And after we've endured the inconsiderateness and overlooked the ingratitude, we are simply to say to the Lord, I have only done my duty. I've only done what God has called me to do. Uh, Pastor Hatting uh, had a quote, I think, at our, Roy, you might remember it, at, at Gloria Sancta, where he said, you know, we're called to live, serve, die, and be forgotten. Um, but we won't, we won't be forgotten by God. That's the, that's the thing we have to remember. Um, so the fact is that all of us are constantly changing roles from serving to being served. We're not just serving, we're being served in the body, in the community. When we are all being served, we need to be sensitive to the demands we make and careful to, the, to express gratitude when other people are serving us. But when we are serving, we need to accept our role and serve as unto the Lord, whether or not considerateness and gratitude are shown at all. Luke 12:37 is one of the most intriguing verses in all the Bible. Um, in that passage, Jesus says this, Blessed are those servants whom the Master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Let me read that again. Blessed are those whose servants, blessed are those servants whom the Master, when he comes, will find watching speaking of himself, of Jesus. Accordingly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. 
The context of this verse is the return of the Son of God. Uh, Verse 40 says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at the hour you do not expect. Jesus appears to be telling us that in some way he will serve his faithful servants when he comes. As the New New Testament commentator William Hendrickson said, What is promised here, therefore, is that our Lord at his second coming will, in a manner consonant with his glory and majesty, wait on his faithful servants. He will serve us. The infinitely greater one will serve the lesser ones. Servanthood is part of the eternal character of God. The reward of servanthood is to be like our master for all eternity. So uh, we're about out of time. I just mentioned next week, Lord willing, I want to wrap this series up uh, and deal with the question of am I my brother's keeper and some of the implications of that as we live uh, as a family and encourage and help one another grow in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and for your work, for the Spirit's work in our lives, for calling us, for placing us into the body of Christ, for giving us gifts and employing us in the service of the body of Christ. Help us to be more aware, to be more diligent, to develop and make use of those glorious gifts for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.